Welcome to Passages Voice. This episode was originally recorded as part of the digital speaker series, where we meet famous leaders in the church, business, and politics to discuss faith and leadership. To learn more, visit the Passages Leaders Network or follow us on social media at Passages Israel. Enjoy. Serene Hudson, and I am the Director of Trip Operations here at Passages. I'm excited to be here with you today for a conversation with our guest, Yaakov Katz. Katz is the Editor-in-Chief of the Jerusalem Post and author of Shadow Strike, Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power. He is also the co-author of Weapon Wizards, How Israel Became a High-Tech Military Superpower, and Israel versus Iran, The Shadow War. Katz served for close to a decade as the paper's military reporter and defense analyst and was a lecturer at Harvard University where he taught an advanced course on journalism. Prior to taking up the role of editor-in-chief, Katz served for two years as a senior policy advisor to Israel's Minister of Economy and Minister of Diaspora Affairs. Originally from Chicago, Katz also has a law degree from Bar-Ilan University. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife and four children. As a reminder to our Passages alumni, you can join the live chat on the Passages Leaders Network in the Q&A box. Those of you watching on Facebook can post a question on the live video feed. Yako, thank you for being with us today. I really look forward to you learning from you on this call. It's great to be with you, definitely. Thank you. First, let's start with some questions to help our audience understand your background, particularly in your career as a journalist. Recently, the uh, profession of journalism has become a lightning rod for criticism. What would you say are the crucial components of good journalism, and how does it serve our society? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, it's, it's, well, first of all, Serena, it's really great to be with you, and uh, we were chatting a bit before the um, coming from the same city and you know neighborhood, so it's it's great to connect. Um, the uh, you know it's a bit of a lightning rod question also because as we've seen, journalism has unfortunately, or the press, the media has become targeted by politicians across the globe. Right, uh, President Trump does it regularly in the United States. Prime Minister Netanyahu does it regularly here in Israel. Right, where two embattled leaders, or at least they feel embattled, they feel under siege by the media, uses the, the media as this uh, adversary, that even if it might not be an adversary, but they, they, it, it serves their political interest to create this adversary, because then they can explain to their constituents and to their people that they are needed to protect them. They are needed to provide them with the truth, they are needed to ensure that they that what's be, what they're being told through the media or through the establishment, uh, the deep state or however you want to call it, uh, is not true. But they are there to tell you the truth. And I think that when you look at politicians, it serves a political interest primarily because what do politicians ultimately need? They need to present the public with the reason why they need to stay in office, right? So at one time it could be, you know, I'll, I'll take Israel for example, right? It, you know, the Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to get elected because he'll defeat Hamas in Gaza, right? Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to get reelected because he'll stop Iran's nuclear program. 
Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to get reelected because only he can stand up to Barack Obama when he was president, right? Or Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to get reelected because only he will be able to do, enact the reforms that are needed in the police and in the courts and in the, the, the Attorney General's office, right? So it's all about how you need me against them. Um, I think what we, what we also have though, is, is this is where the press comes into the, the story, is, uh, is that we have to be careful. Right? We have to be careful because often we are used as a tool. Often our job, for example, is not to be uh, a side to a political argument. Our job is to tell the story of that political argument. Right. And you know, in a very polarized, divided environment that we currently find ourselves in, in the United States and in Israel, very politically volatile situation, right? Um, here in Israel, we've gone through three elections in the last two years, and there's that fourth one that's looming on the horizon. In the United States right now, I'm reading stories all the time about how maybe Trump won't accept the results of the election and what will happen then. I mean, all, all these different scenarios that people are throwing around, and, and what does that do? So, I mean, it, it's just so, and you have riots in the streets, everything is so complicated and so tense that I think the press has to be extra careful. So, you know, to your question of what, what are we supposed to do, I, I can tell you what I always tell my reporters, right? And, and what I try to do with the Jerusalem Post is really ensure that there is something like a wall between our news reporting and our um, opinion writing. Okay. When it comes to news reporting, we're supposed to be as objective as we can. Of course, there's never, there's no such thing as 100% objectivity, right? But, but at least you can do the best that you can to provide people with the facts and the, and the information so they can be informed and they can make their own educated decisions. I don't want my reporters and I don't want to tell you what to think. Do I want to give you my opinion? Of course. Do I want to share with you my analysis of a scenario? Of course. But I want you to be able to make the decision on your own, right? And for you to have all the tools and all the information to do that. And that's difficult. And we get, you know, we get, a why'd you put this photo and not that photo? Why do you use this word and not that word? Sometimes people can really get hung up on smaller details, but they make a difference. And that's why we have to be even more vigilant today. Right. I really appreciate your desire to be careful. And uh, words are powerful and they can do a lot of good and a lot of harm if we're not careful. I, I give, you know, I'll give you just one small example. My first job in journalism was at a newspaper in Israel called Haaretz, based in Tel Aviv. This is back in almost 20 years ago. And then the, uh, this was at the time of, just as the second intifada, this very violent Palestinian uprising was taking place. And the, um, there were lots of terrorist, attack, terrorist attacks against Israelis. Anytime that a Palestinian opened fire at an Israeli car traveling somewhere in Judea and Samaria, also known as the West Bank, we would write, when I was working at Haaretz, a, mm -hmm. uh, a Palestinian militant opened fire on an Israeli car. I worked there for a year and then I switched to the Jerusalem Post. I come to work at the Jerusalem Post mm -hmm. and we're writing the same story, but instead of calling, saying writing a Palestinian militant opened fire on an Israeli car, we wrote a Palestinian terrorist opened fire on an Israeli car. Now you could say one second, it's the same facts, right? Car, mm -hmm. open fire. But just that word, militant or terrorist, carries with it great significance. A terrorist is far more uh, impactful, right? It's, it's scarier, it's, it, it's, it's making sure, it's making it clear that, that person's a bad person. When you say someone's a militant, well, you know, 
as, as it, it could be, it's a pirate word. It's a word that could go either way, right? right. Maybe not such a bad guy, maybe a bad guy. I'm not really sure if he's a bad guy. And, and just with that one word, that one change carries with the political meaning. Right. And that actually leads to our next question, uh, because you have a lot of experience from different, um, in different realms. So how have your pre previous experiences as an author, as an academic, and as a political advisor made you a better journalist and editor? I mean, you're talking about even word selection. I would imagine your experience helps inform those word selections and makes you a good journalist. Well, journalism is what made me an author, right? I, I learned, I have a degree in law. Uh, I, I was supposed to be a lawyer, make a lot of money. <laughs> that, was my, that was my plan. Um, that didn't work out exactly, but I fell in love with telling stories and I fell in love with writing stories and, and being out and in the field and experiencing what most people don't get the opportunity to experience, but to be there where history is made. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I feel privileged that I've had that opportunity to be in the places where uh, I've been able to watch with my own eyes and, and feel with my own feet just as Israel's story has been told for the last 20 years. So I, I feel very privileged for that. Mm -hmm. the, um, as, so, and, and that's what learning how to write and learning how to tell stories is what impacted and gave me the tools and the ability to be able to write books. Because what I discovered as I, as I was writing daily news was that there are some stories that really require to go deeper. They, they need more space, they need, they need to be bigger. Um, and they can't be told as, as big as a story as you could write for, for a newspaper, you're gonna be limited. And some of these stories really require more. And in every book, I've written now three books, uh, each one is, is a passion, it's a drive. It's this, it's this almost like a fire inside you that you feel that you have to tell that story. You can't stop. Interesting question. Oops, sorry. You have to start, that's Siri talking to me. You have to start, you have to tell that story because otherwise it, you won't be able to sleep at night or you won't be able to function. Um, working for a couple of years when I crossed lines for a bit and I did go into uh, government and as more of a policy guy, uh, it was a fascinating experience and, and very enriching because it gave me the opportunity to really see what most journalists don't get to see, which is what happens behind that curtain, right? So we see, you know, journalists, our job is to try to get as much access as possible. Mm -hmm. we, we dream of being a fly on a wall in some of those meetings, but we're always getting it as secondhand. We're always getting hearsay, right? To be able to be there in the room when these decisions are made, to be able to see the leaders up front, the politicians, to be able to watch how they operate and, and what their considerations are. And, and sadly, I'll just say is that it wasn't always... Um, it wasn't always a positive experience, right? Sometimes it was very disappointing and very frustrating to see how politically motivated decisions are. The decisions aren't made because yes, it's the right thing, or this is what's good for the people, but more what's good for my political career, or how does this advance and how does this get me more votes in the next election? And, and, and we don't wanna think that that's what our politicians are doing. We wanna think that our politicians are doing what's good for us, right? That's what we wanna think. Although we all know that unfortunately that's not the case, always or sometimes. But, um, but I feel like it enriched me because it gave me such context yeah. that you don't always get. Now, I don't wanna say I'm special, that I'm able to get that context and not become biased, right? 
uh, I think that every journalist should go through that experience because it will just open them up to see and to get context, right? We look at things as, as black and white. Well, this, this guy didn't make the right decision or this woman didn't make the, made the wrong decision. That's very easy for us sitting in a chair, you know, uh, in, in a room or at an ivory tower on a, on a, on a, on a, on a balcony. Mm-hmm. Um, in the peanut galleries, you're able to say, well, you know, that's true. But when, when you've seen it inside and you understand the, the, the calculations and the risks and the benefit, uh, it gives you a little more perspective. It gives you more context. And context is sorely missing mm-hmm. across the world today in anything, right? right? Yeah, that's great. I imagine that your reporters can also glean from the context you receive that they don't necessarily have access to. That would be. For sure. I mean, I, I, you know, I try that. That's one of the things that I don't write every day and I don't have that time to do. But one of the things that I do try is to help reporters frame what they're doing, right? To give them some of that context. I think that that's, by the way, that's a job for any editor, ultimately, right? People often ask me, like, what do you, so that means you just sit here and you go over pages and you look for spelling mistakes? No, that's not, that's not what I do. Uh, if I were to do that, I wouldn't be able to get anything else done during the day because that, that takes a lot of time in itself. But it's really, it's, it's, it's framing the stories that we're telling. And it's helping the reporting staff tell those stories in a very impactful, in a very uh, interesting, and, and, and in a way that's going to draw attention and keep a reader engaged right. and, and, and give it the right context. Yeah, context is huge. And I think that probably from what you've written on the Iran situation, um, It'll be interesting to hear your thoughts now on the UAE and the Israel Accords, because there is so much context there. Um, what do you think will change between the UAE and Israel after this accord, and what is the primary benefit to Israel? Well, the primary benefit is making peace and normalizing relations with additional countries in this region, right? You know, Serena, ever since Israel was established in 1948, even before then, when, when Jews really started to resettle this land uh, in the late 19th century and with the first waves of Aliyah up leading up to the uh, establishment of the state of Israel, the, the, the goal ultimately of Zionism was mm-hmm. to come and, re, re, and to establish and found again a new, a new Jewish state, right? And a, and a new Jewish homeland. But also at the same time to get along with our neighbors, right? I, I think often about the trajectory of the Jewish people. You know, from, from, from the beginning, you look at the Bible as an example, right? The Jewish people leave slavery in Egypt and they're chased away by the Egyptians, right? They finally, they, they, they get to Mount Sinai. They receive the, the Torah, right? They receive the commandments from God, right? And what's one of the first things that happened? They get attacked. They start getting attacked, right? Everywhere we've gone, as a people throughout history. Mm-hmm. It's been this lack, and you know, you put it all together, what is it really? It's a lack of acceptance. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. It's the failure of the nations of the world to accept that the Jewish people are here, that they're here to stay, that we can live alongside them, right? Now, there's always gonna be different reasons why they fail to accept, whether it's anti-Semitism, it's hatred, it's genocide, whatever it might be. But, the, the fact of the matter is, is that's what we've always wanted, I think. And that dates back millennia. But since we came back and established the state in 1948, that's what we've always tried to get. We didn't want to go to war in 48, right? We accepted the partition plan that the United Nations put on the table, 
right? We, we said, we're willing to take our state, give the Arabs a state. The Arabs are the ones who refused it, right? In, in, uh, in, in 1956, during the Gulf, during the, the Suez crisis, that was Egypt again. In 67, it was again Egypt and Syria and Jordan. In 73, in the Yom Kippur War, it was a surprise attack on our holiest day by Egypt and by, by Syria. Now, luckily, we've been strong and we've survived and we've persevered and we've prospered. And many of these countries have come to understand that we're not going anywhere. Egypt was the first in the Camp David Accords in 1979. Jordan followed with the peace deal between Yitzhak Rabin and King Hussein back in 1994. And we've tried for 25, 26, 27 years, sorry, already, after the signing of the Oslo Accords to reach a peace deal with the Palestinians. Sadly, we failed, right? I think we've all failed. They failed, we failed. Uh, but what the UAE is, it's another manifestation of that desire, which is, we just want to get along with people. We want to live here. We want to be able to get along with our neighbors. So I think that, that, that that's the underlying message. And I hope that that message trickles. I hope that that spreads throughout the Middle East. I hope that other countries, I think we're seeing that, right? We saw just the deal announced over the weekend with Kosovo, a Muslim state that we're formalizing diplomatic relations with and we'll be moving an embassy to Jerusalem. We see that with Bahrain, probably next in line. We see that with Morocco. We see that with Oman, with, with, with Saudi Arabia, which is now allowing Israeli airplanes to fly over its airspace, right? So they're not yet coming to the table to say, okay, we're going to let you open an embassy in Riyadh, but, but they'll get there eventually. Right. And I think that that's, that's the big news and that's the big benefit, mm -hmm. is, is, is bringing us together and understanding that we can do so much more together than against one another. It really is unprecedented times to see the news come out with all of these countries following UAE's lead. And I uh, really resonate with you that desire to see peace come into the region. Um, you did mention the Camp David Accords, and I'm interested to know how is this uh, deal with UAE and Israel different from that? Well, you know, the Camp David Accords, which were, uh, tremendous in, in what they achieved, right? It, Egypt, in the, we take the Yom Kippur War as an example. Israel in the Yom Kippur War lost two, over 2,500 soldiers. It was its bloodiest debacle. Israel was caught completely by surprise. Israel fought four wars against Egypt. Egypt was a formidable military with some of the most advanced Soviet-made military platforms from MiG fighter jets to SA-6 and SA-2, uh, surface-to-air missile systems, you name it. And they wreaked havoc on Israeli warplanes. During the Yom Kippur War, as an example, the last war we fought against Egypt, we lost 100 airplanes hmm. uh, during that war. But we also, in the end, we held on to the territory. We held on to the Sinai. We held on to the Golan. We, we retained what we had conquered in the Six-Day War just six years earlier. But that six, you know, it was bloody, but that success is also what prompted Anwar Sadat, who was the president of Egypt, to come to the table and to recognize, look, I can't destroy them. I've tried four times. It's just not working. We should make peace, right? And I think that that's what takes real brave and courageous leaders, Absolutely. is Sadat on the side of the Egyptians, Menachem Begin on the side of Israel, is to come together and understand, put ideology aside for a moment. We have to do what's in the best interest of our nations. And, and that peace accord that was reached became a pillar of stability here mm -hmm. in the Middle East. For Israel, it allowed Israel, which has innumerable uh, 
security threats and challenges on all its borders, be able to say, okay, we have peace with Egypt. We don't, that which was our longest border, one of our longest borders is, is uh, facing off against a very large military. We don't have to worry about them now. We can focus on the other threats, the threats from Hezbollah in the North, the threat from Iran, the threat from, uh, from Syria, right? And Hamas and Gaza. We don't have to worry about Egypt because we have peace. With Egypt, it brought them economic stability or somewhat, right? With aid from the United States. At the same time, it also showed the world and the rest of the Middle East what's possible. But the problem is, and this is where the UAE, I think, is, is, is really this amazing breath of fresh air, is because of those four wars that we fought with Egypt, there was hostility between the peoples. Right. The, the peace treaty created on a, what's called a G2G, a government-to-government level, uh, very good relations on security coordination, some trade, diplomatic relations. But on a people-to-people level, your average Israeli doesn't feel what the, the benefits of the peace with Egypt. The average Egyptian doesn't feel the benefits of peace with Israel. You don't have Egyptians flocking to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. You don't have Israelis. Israelis love to go to the Sinai, but they're not flying in, in, in throngs to uh, Cairo or Alexandria or Port Said. Yeah. And I think that with the UAE, because there's, we were never at war with them, we don't have that, that history of hostility and animosity, this can be a piece that's not a cold piece, but it's actually a warm piece. In a warm piece, people might say, Yaakov, you're naive, you're, you're going too far, but I, 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 I would hope and I imagine that maybe this warm piece, and, and you already see it, you saw, I saw a video of an Emirati uh, musician playing the, the, the Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem on a flute. Right? These are things that you never would have imagined are possible. And, and I, I would hope that this warm peace that we're establishing with the Emirates mm. will actually trickle down. And the, your average Egyptian will say, one second, that's what, that's what you can do with Israel? And your average Jordanian will say, wow, that's what you can do with Israel? We want to be with like that too. And maybe it'll have this ripple effect. Maybe I am naive. But you know what? Optimism is better than the alternative. I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. um, I did see just uh, this morning that there has been some warming up of language between the Palestinian Authority and their response to the UAE move. Um, This question may already be answered by that, but what impact might this peace still have on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, that largely depends on the Palestinians. Uh, it's, It's sad to say, you know, personally, my opinion is we need to do, we need to find a way to solve this conflict with the Palestinians. Um, but unfortunately, the Palestinians are, are stuck. They're stuck because of bad leadership. They're stuck because of intransigence. They're stuck because of their failure to understand that to make peace, yes, there are prices that need to be paid by both sides. And for years and for decades, the Palestinians have climbed so high on a tree that they uh, refuse to accept the fact that they need to um, agree to make those concessions. So they continue to try to get Israel to give them whatever they want, right? And it's just not working. And instead, unfortunately, what they're finding is they're being left behind, right? Mm-hmm. They're being left behind. Israel's making normalizing ties with, with the United Arab Emirates. And the Palestinians are threatening and threatening and threatening. And the, the Emiratis are saying, you're not going to hold us hostage. We have to advance our country. And you're seeing that happening. And, and you know what? There's a part of me that feels bad for the Palestinians because they are being held hostage by this, this leadership that is sadly corrupt. 
and is, is, is missing out on an opportunity to bring a new era to the Middle East. Israel will have to make painful concessions for there to be a viable Palestinian state that's independent, that can grow, that can flourish economically and, and, and socially. But, but I think it's in our interest. Um, so for now, unfortunately, they're hunkering down, they're, they're digging in their heels. Again, the typical intransigence, the, the, the Abba Ibn, one of Israel's greatest statesmen, mm-hmm. ambassador of the United Nations in the United States said many years ago, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity when referring to the Arabs. And unfortunately, it's true about the Palestinians. This, if, I, if, if I was their leader, which I'm not, this would be the opportunity to come to the table and say, I want to join that peace wagon or that peace train. I want to, I want to, I want to get on board. I want to become part of that process. Because yeah. look what we can do, how we can change the, the, the region, what, what we can bring to our people. But sadly, they're not there. But maybe they'll come around. I mean, I think that, that that's what we can hope for, is that eventually they will come around. Yeah. Switching a little bit now to, you know, we've talked about government to government, people to people. Um, In terms of the military, as an American Israeli with an uh, expertise in Israel's military, you have a unique perspective. There are rumors of an arms sale between the U.S. and the UAE that has sparked some controversy. Can you explain the concept of Israel's qualitative military edge, or QME? and how this might impact that. Right. Well, I actually have right behind me, I'll just show you for a second. Okay. This is a model of the F-35, right? That, that the, the version, this is the Israeli one, but because it's got the Star of David sticker on it. <laughs> but, uh, but the F-35 is the, uh, is, those are my toys, that's what I do at work, you know, I get to play. <laughs> but, the, 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 the F-35 is something that the, the Emiratis, the UAE, has wanted to try to get their hands on for years. Now, just to explain for a moment what that means, uh, if you think about F-15s and F-16s, which make up most of the fleets of Western countries around the world, those are what are known as fourth-generation fighter jets or combat aircraft. Okay. Uh, Israel's um, fleet of fighter jets today mostly consists of F-16s and F-15s. The F-35 is a fifth generation fighter jet, which basically means that it also comes with stealth capabilities. So it can fly in areas where there's radar detection, but without being detected. And also it creates this new network centric capability that allows a pilot in a, in a, in a cockpit of an F-35 to almost talk with every other vehicle or platform on the ground, in the air, around him, sharing intelligence in ways that are unprecedented. That, that's the big news of what this, this plane can actually do. The Emiratis want it because they want to boost their own capabilities, right? And they want to be able to uh, deter Iran, which is no less a threat to them as it is to Israel, maybe even more. There are people who would argue that that the Emirates are more threatened by Iran than even Israel, even though it's Israel that the Iranian ayatollahs and mullahs claim that they want to wipe off the map and destroy one day. But what that does for Israel is creates concern. Because Israel looks around the region, right? We don't have to think, go back that too, you know, we don't have to go that far back in history. Uh, in 1979, when there was the Islamic Revolution in, um, in Iran, right? Up until then, the Iranians were an ally of Israel and they were an ally of the United States. As a matter of fact, the first F-16s that Israel purchased came in 1980 
And they were actually, they'd been ordered by the Iranians. But after the Islamic Revolution in 79, the United States, of course, was not going to deliver F-16s to Iran. So the Secretary of Defense of the United States at the time calls up Israel and says, listen, I'm willing, would you guys want these F-16s? They're not, they weren't made with your specific, you know, modifications. Um, but we have them coming off the assembly line. Would you take them? And Israel took them. And, you know, just to close the circle on that story, those F-16s that Israel bought from the United States that were originally supposed to go to Iran were the F-16s that were used in 1981 to bomb the Osirak reactor that Saddam Hussein was building in Iraq. So imagine, you know, just what goes around comes around in this crazy world that we live in. But uh, we've seen what happens. So a country that was once an ally, that would have advanced military capabilities, one day they're an ally, next day they're taken over by uh, an extremist Islamic or, or enemy of the state of Israel. So Israel has that concern. So the QME, the qualitative military edge, which is basically entrenched in U.S. legislation and law, dictates or mandates or obligates the U.S. government to ensure that whenever it makes a sale of any military hardware, weaponry, technology to the Middle East, it, it takes into consideration what does this do to that balance of power? Right. And how do we ensure that Israel keeps and retains that QME? And this is something that's a discussion, right? This is something that Israel needs to discuss with the United States. The U.S. has two very important interests here. The first is, this is billions of dollars in arms sales. Now, let's not forget, by the way, the UAE has purchased over the last 20 years billions of dollars in U.S. military hardware. They already have F-16s. They have advanced aircraft. They have advanced weapons and missiles. They got a lot of the good stuff already. They want even better, right? So America has an interest in getting this, especially during COVID, be an injection of money into the U.S. economy. The second interest is... Once you make peace with Israel or normalize ties with Israel, you go from, to make it simple, you go from the bad guy group to the good guy group. And if you're now in the good guy group, there's a reason why we'd want, the America would want to give you those weapons to give you uh, offensive and defensive capabilities to make you strong, to make you protected against your other enemies. It's not against Israel. Right. Israel's interest also is to deter Iran, is to create a united front against, a front against the Iranians. So... It, it became a little controversial more, more, I think, because of politics here in Israel and just the way Prime Minister Netanyahu managed this whole thing and kept some of his coalition partners in, in the dark on what was happening with this deal. But I think that ultimately, Israelis understand that when you look at the cost-benefit analysis of peace and normalized ties with the United Arab Emirates, and at the cost of the fact, yes, they will be getting probably these advanced aircraft, it's in our interest to normalize these ties with them. And I think that's pretty much the consensus opinion right now. Interesting. Uh, just to follow up on something you said, why would you feel that the EUAE feels more in um, a position of vulnerability, in a sense, than Israel with Iran? Well, on the one hand, Iran claims to want to destroy us, right? Which is, you know, and they, they try ultimately as well. They have terrorist proxies spread across our borders from Hezbollah in the north to Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the south. They're, they're trying to entrench themselves and create bases in Syria. They've flown drones and fired missiles over the border. They're trying to constantly smuggle weapons in there. This is a, 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 a daily battle, but they are far away, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if they one day got their hands on a nuclear weapon, they do have ballistic missiles that have the capability of reaching Israel, but we're not facing a war along our border where it'll be Israeli soldiers up against Iranian revolutionary guards, right? They have some of them, but they mostly operate via proxy. Mm -hmm. 
The United Arab Emirates is right across the, 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 the ocean or, or the sea, the Persian Gulf from the, the Iranians. In addition, Iran, it's no secret, has tried uh, countless times to undermine the regimes of these moderate Sunni states. And the Sunni-Shia divide dates back millennia, right? But, but it, it, it's not just a religious theological debate. It plays out in politics and in the military and in the battlefield. You see, for example, what's happening in Yemen where you have the Houthis fighting against the Yemenite government and you have the, the uh, Saudis and the Emiratis fighting for Yemen and you have Iran, which is supplying the Houthi rebels and they're fighting it out there. And unfortunately at a great humanitarian cost for the regular uh, people of Yemen. Mm -hmm. But this battle has them very, very concerned. They're concerned because Iran also makes no secret that it wants to spread its hegemony across the Middle East. It's not, it's not satisfied with just having one Islamic Republic. It wants countless Islamic, it wants to reestablish the caliphate. Mm -hmm. and, and, and therefore, they are just as concerned, right? And maybe people might even say more concerned. I mean, you know, I go back, I don't wanna go on too long, but if you go back and look at some of the WikiLeaks cables that came out back a few years ago, and it was like, not 2009, 2010, you saw in, in, in some of these diplomatic cables meetings with leaders of Bahrain or the UAE that then they were, secretive between them and Israelis. And they were saying to Israel, attack, attack Iran. They were urging on Israel to attack the Iranians, right? It's incredible. Huh. Well, what role do you believe other nations like the U.S. can play in Arab-Israeli relations? The U.S. is, uh, I think, has been pivotal here and extremely important. You know, all of the peace treaties that Israel has reached um, over the years, whether it was with Egypt in 79, then it was Jimmy Carter, who was the president at the time and helped mediate that peace deal at Camp David over 13 days. In 1994, it was Bill Clinton. Uh, now it's President Donald Trump, right? But the, the, the U.S. has power mm -hmm. and has strength that, that cannot be underestimated, cannot be uh, looked at in, as not being stronger than it really is, right? And, and I think that this is to Israel's benefit. The world looks very closely and they understand that Israel and the U.S. are aligned in a way that doesn't exist between necessarily with the U.S. with other countries. I, I always say that, you know, when I look at Israel's strategic power and what, where is it sourced from, I think of three strategic pillars. The first, sorry, four strategic pillars. The first is our conventional military, the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, is really the most advanced technologically uh, moral military here in the region. The second is our purported nuclear capability. We don't say we have it, we don't say we don't, but everyone thinks we does, we do. So that, you know, boosts deterrence. Mm -hmm. The third is our startup nation, is our technology, that people want to tap into that, those brains and that tech, whether it's drip irrigation, whether it's life sciences, cyber technology, people want that technology. And the fourth is our alliance with the United States that boosts our deterrence. Hmm. People know that ultimately if our back is up against the wall, America will be there, right? And, th and that sends a message. And therefore, when you have that, and you have the US on your side, you're able to bring more people to the table. You're able to create and forge more of these relationships and, and, and some of these peace treaties, right? Also, not to mention the fact that America has much more that it can actually offer than necessarily Israel, right? There's other parts to this story that isn't just you know making peace and making nice with the Jews in Israel, right? There's always going to be another component. 
Um, and I think that hopefully, you know, to, uh, to the credit of the Trump administration, they've done a very good job with this uh, UAE deal. It seems that other deals might be coming. I'm, I'm hearing lots of different talk that it could be that if there is going to be a signing of the UAE deal next week, you might even have another country that will be there as well signing. Let's hope. But, uh, but I think that we hopefully will see more of this coming. Right. Great. So, so good to hear those things from you. And uh, I really resonate again with that desire for more of this. Um, but now it's time for some questions. I'm sure that there are a lot more um, things that we could talk about, but we want to give some time to our listeners. And uh, just to our audience, if you haven't submitted a question yet, please put it in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen and we will try to answer as many as we have time for. So first up, we have Gordon. Gordon says, it wasn't always this polarized regarding the media. So going back to the beginning of our conversation, how did we get here and is there a way back? It's, it's, it's a tough one. I, you know, how did we get here? I think honestly, one of the, it's not a problem, but it's just the reality of the fact is that uh, the media is also a business, right? And especially when it comes, like if you think about cable TV for a moment. So cable TV, what do they need to do? They need to attract uh, viewers. They need to attract advertisers. They need to make money, right? And the way to do that is to really be edgy, is to, is, to, is to be provocative, right? Is to create a voice that will, um, that will, will, will attract those people, will keep them, will, will, will create a high level of retention, will get people to keep watching, right? But at right. the same time, it comes at the expense of what's classic journalism, of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. I see that in newspapers where, where people and journalists are taking more of a stand where the lines are getting blurred between what is a new, who's a news writer and who's an opinion writer. When, 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 when people in analysis of situations are clearly endorsing one candidate over the other, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, uh, it's, it's something that we have to ask ourselves, what do we want ultimately, right? I always tell people, you know, the first thing is we have to recognize that this is the reality. So if you watch just Fox News, you're going to get one version of reality. If you just watch just see MSNBC, you're going to get another version of reality. Right? If you read just the Jerusalem Post, you'll get one version. If you read just Haaretz, you're going to get another version. So first of all, do yourself a favor and watch and read a little more, right? Don't just go to one place. That's number one. Number two is when you're reading and you're, and you're, and you're digesting and, and consuming this news, do it in a way that you're keeping your mind open, right? And you're, you're doing your best to try to understand and learn and question. Mm -hmm. You know, people always say to me, I, I get a lot of flack sometimes if we run an opinion piece by someone who's too far left or too far right. And I say to them, but if I just give you opinions of pe written by people who you agree with, what's the purpose? Right? Yeah. They're just reinforcing this feeling that you already have. Isn't it to be challenged? Don't we want to have our ideas and our thoughts and our ideology challenged? Is Maybe we'll walk away thinking something else. Or maybe we'll walk away saying, no, they're wrong. I'm actually right. And that will reinforce what we're already thinking. But I, I think we've, we, we've become way too polarized. And, and, and we become, everything is so divisive today. Mm -hmm. I think we have to realize that there are differences. You're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're pro-Netanyahu, you're anti-Netanyahu. 
But that doesn't mean that we can't get along. That doesn't mean that we can't talk. That doesn't mean that we can't debate ideas. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, I find way too often that there's like a line in the sand that you cannot cross. And I think we have to be willing to be more tolerant, more accepting, more respectful. Yeah. Actually, I talk with my husband a lot about one of the things I really value from Jewish tradition is the ability to debate, right? And not just to, you know, take things as they are, but to really ball it over and talk with each other. So it's really good. Um, David asks, how do you train journalists to attend carefully to their words? Well, I mean, first of all, one of the ways to do that is obviously to talk about it. And I, you know, I give you, you the example of militant versus terrorists. So that's, you know, right. that's one way of doing things. The other way is really to uh, be very vigilant and just be on top of things and to watch the language that's used and to follow how people are writing and, and, and how they're phrasing things and how they're, you know, putting things together um, and stories and, 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 and the type of words and semantics that are being used because they are important because they do make a difference, because they, they, they change the way people think. Um, so I try to keep my eye on it. I think some of the other editors here do as well. Um, and when necessary, we've had stories. You know, I can't say that it hasn't happened. We've had people who have made mistakes, right? And, and, and unfortunately uh, came out and endorsed candidates, participated in, in, in videos that they should not have, or wrote something, written something that they should not have. Um, and, and we've had to take measures to try to ensure, because I think that the, the, the most important uh, asset that we ultimately have is our integrity, right? If we don't have our integrity, then, then, then what do we have, right? Yeah. So we, we might know how to write a good story, but people won't believe what they're reading. People yeah. will, be, will, will always think, oh, that guy, yeah, I know why, why he's writing this because of that. Or that guy, I know why he's writing that because you know he does. He 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 likes this guy as opposed to that guy. Right. No, right. I, I don't want people thinking that. I want people. I want people seeing one day you can write in favor, and one day you can write against. One day you can say something positive. One day you can point out something negative, or you can do it in a balanced way. It doesn't all have to be positive, but it also doesn't all have to be negative. Yeah. And I think that that's that's the true challenge, is how to find that balance. And and there's no, by the way, there's no secret sauce. There's no formula that I can. I can, you know, to the question by David, right? There's no, uh, there's no recipe that I could write for you um, or, or, or roadmap. But it's about using something that we often, too, many, too often, all of us fail. It's called common sense, right? It's just, it's just using common sense in how you're going to phrase something and how you're going you're gonna to frame it and put it together and put it down into words. Hmm. Great. Sarah asks, what are some other countries that might follow the UAE and what are some optimistic signs that we should pay attention to? I know that you mentioned a little bit about this, but maybe you can go into it more. Well, you know, some of the other countries that are might coming up along, uh, you know, next, one of them is Bahrain, uh, another country in the Gulf, Oman, a country that Prime Minister Netanyahu actually visited last year. So we do know that there, there already are, are diplomatic ties, although not yet formalized and official. Um, Morocco is a country that Israel has had relations with in the past, that uh, has a Jewish community there, Israelis have traveled there, there's a huge uh, community of, of Moroccan Jews that live in Israel, um, Sephardic Jews, that therefore there's a lot of cultural exchange already taking place. Uh, I would expect some of those to come. Sudan is a country that's very interesting, right? 
Uh, we know that Prime Minister Netanyahu met with the leader of Sudan. We saw an, uh, the uh, uh, an Israeli plane that flew over Sudanese airspace. And we saw the first direct flight from Tel Aviv to Khartoum just uh, two weeks ago when Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was here in, in Jerusalem. Um, and actually had the opportunity to meet him and you know uh, to, to be able to interview him during that trip that he was here and talk to him about kind of what's happening, what's coming next. And I think Sudan is another one of those stories another one of those countries that might be in line. And why Sudan so symbolic? Because let's remember the three no's of Khartoum, right? The Arab League meets there. After I think it was the, the Six Day War, and they say no to peace with Israel, no to negotiations with Israel, and no to recognizing Israel, to recognition of Israel. And now Sudan might be not only making peace with Israel, recognizing Israel, negotiating with Israel, but throwing those three no's, the famous three no's of the Arab League out the window. Yeah. <clears throat> and, that, and, and, and that's the big news here is that it's changing, right? And, and, and this whole region is, is potentially going to change in a way that we've never seen before. Incredible. Well, that was our last question. And um, this has been an incredible time talking with you, Yako. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. We appreciate learning more about current events and thinking about the need for good journalism. Thank you. Hopefully some of our alumni can follow your example. Uh, not just them, but other, other writers, other newspapers. To our audience, thank you for joining today. Whether this is your first time or not, be on the lookout for more event, events this fall. So thank and you again, Yaakov. It's been great. I want to thank you very much for the opportunity. I also, I hope we'll be able to see you all soon again here in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. When things settle and trips are back up again, I look forward to seeing you in person here. Thank you. Bye. Take care. From Passages, this is Josiah McGee. If you have a topic you would love to dive deeper into, email me at josiah at passagesisrael.org for more information. Thanks for listening.